CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, You can imagine that sometime yesterday, Georgia Democratic leaders might have suddenly thought of one of Yogi, Yogi Berra's most famous uh, sayings, it ain't over till it's over, because up until and through this weekend, many Georgia Democrats, including the mayor of Atlanta, Andre Dickens, were convinced that the Democratic National Committee was about to announce that Atlanta would be the site of their presidential nominating convention next August. That isn't the way it happened. The convention will be held in Chicago. And we're going to talk about the implications of that on the show as we start today's uh, political rewind with our panel. That includes Greg Bluestein, uh, my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution on the Wednesday show. You know Greg. He's a political reporter for the AJC and a commentator, an analyst for uh, NBC's various uh, platforms as well. Greg, a lot of people shocked uh, by the decision. Yeah, a lot of people shocked. Uh, there were there were senior Democrats who publicly and privately were sure that the DNC was coming to Atlanta. I mean, as recently as just this, this past Monday, we're setting up uh, plans for a celebratory press conference in at State Farm Arena or somewhere else downtown. And instead, that celebratory press conference will be happening in Chicago, where I'm at right now. Yeah, it'll be interesting to uh, see what you as an Atlanta reporter uh, get out of the news conference and the questions you're able uh, to ask uh, today. We're also joined today by the former attorney general of the state of Georgia, Sam Mullen. Sam, it's great to have you back on the show. How are you? Sam, are, are you muted? We're I'm, not hearing you. I'm sorry. Do, doing great, Bill. It's a pleasure to be with everyone. Uh, Michael Thurman is with us. He's the CEO of DeKalb County um, right now, longtime uh, 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 office holder, starting with his days in the legislature, labor commissioner, DeKalb County School Superintendent. Uh, Mike, you've worn many, many hats. W- were you one of the Democrats who was involved in trying to encourage uh, the DNC to come to Atlanta? I frankly don't know. <clears throat> Well, in a peripheral way, we all worked under the leadership of Mayor Dickens to try to get this uh, accomplished. So like everyone else, uh, I was disappointed, but I have a different view of it uh, when we get a chance to talk about it. Well, we will do that as soon as we introduce Professor Andra Gillespie, a political science professor, of course, at Emory University and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of race and difference. Hi, Andra. How are you? I'm sure you would have loved to have seen the convention in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I tweeted about it yesterday. I was looking forward to being able to sleep at my own house for this convention. So I am not happy (laughs) about this at all for purely selfish reasons. But other than that. (laughs) All right, Greg, let's start. Um, Why were Democrats so optimistic and what are the factors that we imagine went into the decision to go to Chicago? Well, there's so many different factors, but look, Democrats were optimistic um, for, for a number of reasons. One was that they were getting all the, the right signals from uh, the Biden administration about Atlanta's chances. Um, Mayor Dickens and his allies, including uh, the, the CEO of the cab who's on the show with us, <laughs> were, were, pressing, um, were pressing Democratic officials every chance they, they got. Uh, to, to host the convention in Atlanta, there is the 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 sort of legacy tug of the civil rights um, era here. There was also, of course, the fact that there was a sentimental push for for Biden to host the event in, in the state that helped him put him over the top, rather than a blue state like Illinois, where he's assured of victory. Um, and uh, there was a lot of other factors involved, including the logistics and you know just all that Atlanta had to offer. But at the same time. Um, there are certain things that Atlanta couldn't have to offer. Uh, Chicago is the safe pick. It's hosted more 
political convention than any other city on the in the nation. Um, it it has United Center and, and all sorts of benefits that come along with with you know a bigger city and an ample hotel stock and all that good stuff. It has an administration both in Chicago and the governor's office that would work with the DNC. You know, Georgia, of course, uh, Mayor Dickens would work with the DNC, but Governor Kemp has, has kept that arm's length approach to it for obvious reasons as, as a high-rising Republican. And I think the biggest factor, at least the factor that kept on coming up over and over in all my conversations with senior Democrats on the record and privately is Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker has offered, along with his family and his allies, to basically underwrite, to bankroll this entire convention. So, it, you know, this thing costs $100 million, um, and it's no small small factor that the governor of Illinois, who's a billionaire himself, is saying, look, if it, if if if, uh, if this event goes in the red, I'll cover the costs. So, um, Mike, let me turn to you as the Democrat on the panel. Um is it is it surprising though that um, given that the Midwest is um, remains a an important Democratic stronghold, Illinois, uh, Wisconsin barely uh, voting for uh, Biden in twenty twenty, Michigan uh, there. I mean, it's it's not as if that's not a good place for the Democrats to meet, right? Oh, correct. But first, uh, Mayor Dickens and his leadership did an excellent job of generating the support, the enthusiasm, the finances to support Atlanta's bid. Look, there was only going to be one winner. So you always got losers, and we need to just acknowledge the great job that they did putting Atlanta forward and being in the mix. But to your point, Bill, which is where I was going, I'm not as surprised as some people because if you think back over the last two to three months, you've seen – uh, President Biden and administration tracking more towards the center. Uh, I think he has demonstrated and has made no secret of the fact that he wants to attract more uh, moderate white Democrats or independent or, or moderate Republicans back into the Democratic Party. And the blue wall has been and continues to be a critical component mm-hmm. in any presidential election for a Democrat. So I see this as really just evidence of the path forward in 2024. You know, you come to Georgia, and I would love it, but it's Georgia. There's really no other southern state in play right now but Georgia. But in the Midwest, you have other options. And I think, pragmatically, that's what the the difference. It wasn't the quality of the presentation or the leadership. I just think from a practical political perspective, when you think in 24. The options are greater in the Midwest, although I'm sad to see it. Sam, uh, just weigh in on your thought with your thoughts on all this. Well, I mean, the president always says always says he's the most pro-union president of all time. Uh, there's a stark contrast between Atlanta and Chicago in in that regard. Uh, and I agree with a lot of what uh, Mike just said. There are a lot more good reasons for the DNC to meet in Chicago. I also agree with Mike that Mayor Dickens gave it a great um, a great shot and had a, a super team working with him. So, Andre, um, let me bring you in uh, to the conversation by pointing out some uh, data, because I know you love data. Uh, and that is relates to the uh, the significance of hosting a convention to the state's uh, presidential outcomes in in the uh, November elections. In 2012, North Carolina hosted the Democrats, uh, and uh, 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 they lost the, the state. Obama lost the state. In uh, 2016, it was Pennsylvania, and uh, they, he they lost the state. Um, in Minnesota, the same thing happened back in 2008 when the state went Republican. But here's an even, I think, more pertinent uh, piece of information. In 1988, the last time that Atlanta hosted a Democratic National Convention, the nominee was Michael Dukakis, who lost Georgia to George H.W. Bush by 20 points, Atra. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, you know, this is one of those instances where the we are talking about symbolic politics. Um, and so 
there are times when symbols matter and there are times when symbols don't necessarily matter in the ways that we think that they do. Um, and so uh, this is one of those instances where I wouldn't be looking at trying to hold a convention in a particular place because it is going to guarantee that you win the state or the vicinity, though I do recognize uh, sort of the inhospitability for Democratic candidates running in the Deep South uh, writ large. Um but I think, you know, so for me, I would actually privilege some of the other practical factors, like Democrats like to hold lots of caucus stuff during the day, and then they've got to like bus people across town. And I think that that's likely still to happen in Chicago, even though there are lots of great places to do conventions in Chicago. Um, I go there all the time for meetings. So, um, you know, I think Atlanta would have been just more walkable to get people around for the things that happen at DNCs. Um but I think it's also sort of in, in important for people to realize that you can't just kind of like parachute into it into a region and think all of a sudden this region is going to vote for you just because you've held uh, your convention there. I mean, even when we think about the bumps that happen for candidates post conventions, right? It's common to see sort of the candidate who was just vetted at the convention get a bump in the polls. It doesn't necessarily sustain itself. It will return to some type of equilibrium after the fact. So I think we need to sort of you know, be careful about how much we read into the importance of of, of location for for these events. Greg, what, to, there are, there are people who wonder, even though the convention is well over a year away, and we have no idea what's going to be happening around the Atlanta Police Training Center in terms of protests and that sort of thing. At that point, there are people who wonder if Democrats were a little bit nervous about uh, whether or not they might face a. Uh, uh, protesters uh, turning out who are opposed to they, what they call cop city. Yeah. I, I'm getting some um, comments about that this morning, actually, Ted mm. Terry, who's a DeKalb County uh, commissioner was, was, was saying, you know, basically, do you think that's a factor? Um, and I, I, I know protest in general are just a, a fact of life <laughs> with these, with these events. Uh, there's so many other issues here, uh, but certainly the fact that, there could be protests. Frankly, the fact that there could be a trial involving Donald Trump going around just around the corner could have also been a factor because we've seen that President Biden has assiduously tried to avoid commenting on that potential indictment or whatever's happening in New York as well. Um, it's not a, it's not going to be a, a, a key argument for him. Um, so there's a lot of other issues going on. But I I I'll go back to what uh CEO Thurman said too, which was there's there is a pragmatic uh political recognition that the upper Midwest is going to be a real big part of Biden's strategic uh plan for 2024. And frankly it's also as we can see from the RNC, it's also a big part of the Republican strategy too, because the the, the Republican National Convention will be held um not far away, less than two hours away in Milwaukee. Yeah, exactly. Um, Sam, uh, I read some commentary this morning suggesting that, in fact, bringing the uh, Democratic convention to Atlanta um, might have been, uh, looked good for Governor Kemp, uh, it, because the, the sense <laughs> is that um, he would be able to tout the state's uh, great economic growth, the development of EV technology and the like here. Your thoughts about that? Well, clearly, the governor would have a uh, a place and an argument to make. I mean, the, the state's economy is doing great. The unemployment rates are at historic lows uh, in all categories. Um, it is sort of ironic that that's this big uh, new plant is opening up in the center of Marjorie Taylor Greene's district. Um, <laughs> so it's okay to vote against, but to, you know, take the jobs. Uh, you know, the, the governor was at the cop chamber yesterday and had a long litany of successes to to talk about. So, uh, you know, I think his his stock is still rising and uh, one could have expected that he would have taken full advantage as he should during such a, a convention. Yeah, um, Sam, of course, you're talking about the expansion of the Q cells, uh, solar uh, power uh, 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 a plant um, up there, which Vice President Kamala Harris came in to uh, uh, talk about uh, in a visit up to Dalton uh, the other day. So I don't want to dwell on on this, but let me just to, for a couple more minutes. Um, Mike Thurman, I'm going to share with you first a story 
um, about expectations of conventions. First of all, I was lucky enough to cover 10 presidential uh, conventions during my tenure at WSB-TV News. And um, <laughs> one of the things that invariably happened by midweek of any convention was local news would start reporting, wow, um, the promised um, economic windfall that the people who are organizing this convention said we would get hasn't developed. People are not making a lot of money off the convention. In fact, traffic is stopping people from getting around. Conventioneers are uh, crowding into restaurants and stores. So I've always been fascinated by that because, of course, Atlanta, like Chicago and other cities, when they're promoting the convention for their own people, talk about the millions, hundreds of millions of dollars that the conventions will draw. It rarely turns out that way, Mike. Well, that's true. And, you know, just picking up on what T. Bluestein was saying earlier. But it's a good, it's a process. And look, the thing about politics is they do it every four years. So let's just get ready for four years from now. We have all of this experience that'll put us in a prime position uh, to go back out there and try again. There can only be one winner. And now the decision has been made. It's time to move on. And as uh, Professor Gillespie was saying, it's important, but it's not absolutely pivotal as to where a convention is held. Uh, we can use this knowledge to help us put forward and for other events and other conventions, not just the Democratic uh, uh, National Convention, but this just is a good training ground for a mayor who's still in his first year to just be the most successful going forward. All right. Um, before we change subject, Greg, I'll share one more personal story about past conventions. In 1988, Atlanta was bidding for both a Republican and Democratic national conventions. The Republicans ended up choosing New Orleans. The Democratic convention was still undecided. It looked like it was going to be Houston or Atlanta. Um, while I was out covering that story, um, ABC News called our bosses in the WSB newsroom and said, hey, we need you to know that in a week, the DNC is going to name Houston as the site of the 88 convention. So you might want to wave off the reporter who you have traveling around the country uh, trying to get a beat on this story. Well, of course, in 1988, Houston did not get the convention. They thought they were going to. It did, in fact, come uh, to Atlanta. So the more things uh, change, the more they're the same. Andra? <laughs> yeah, so there, there was one more thing. As you were asking questions about the impacts, I was quickly looking something up just to see if I could see who had written about it. And it turned out I found an article written by a friend of mine from graduate school, co-written, that talked about the effect of conventions. And the convention does have a positive impact on the party vote share of the host in the host city at the county level. Oof. So, I mean, I think that they oh. like... So in the like in the immediate vicinity of the convention, um, there, there there will be a boost for the hosting party, um, and they are and they looking at data from I think the ninety two to about twenty twelve, um, where they were able to find this effect. So it would need to be replicated to see sort of whether or not we've seen the same thing in the last a decade or so. Um, and then I think it's important to talk about okay, so what happens in the in that immediate metro area versus us necessarily being able to talk about sort of like a statewide effect. Thank you for that. Greg, a final comment? Yeah, and Bill, to your point, too. I mean, look, I, th there's definitely parallels between what you heard all those years ago and what I was hearing uh, these past few weeks. I mean, uh, to the point of getting phone calls saying it's all over, but the dotting of the I's and the crossing of the T's, Atlanta's got this. I mean, we at the AJC decided not to go with the story earlier saying that because this boils down to one man's whims. That's President Biden. And that's why uh, it's not a big, you know, there's committees involved and there's other people involved, but this is this is his decision ultimately. And that's why it's so hard to track down um, why or why not it, it, it happened. Uh, another quick story. In 1988, the Democrats announced in Washington on a Monday that they were going to uh, they were going to announce their convention site. The day before, I went out to the home in Silver Spring of the head of their site selection committee, a big real estate developer named Nate Landau, who uh, said, yeah, come interview me out here. And when I showed up at his front door, he had, as a joke, laid out a welcome mat that read, welcome to Houston. <laughs> it did not go to Houston. Let's, let's do this. Well, let's be get a, our first break of the show. Name. Yeah. yeah. 
Go ahead. One name we hadn't mentioned is President Barack Obama. Maybe he had a little bit to do with this, too. Ah, interesting. The, our Chicago uh, president. Well, all right, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way and come back with a lot more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Emory University Professor Andre Gillespie, DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman, former State Attorney General Sam Olins and the AJC's Greg Bluestein joined me for today's Political Rewind. Um, I'd love to ask all of you on the panel for your thoughts on this uh, next subject. Um, Margaret Coker, the editor-in-chief of The Current, which uh, is based down in Savannah. Um, you've all heard her on this show, uh, and in fact, she'll be on again tomorrow. Um, Greg, she asked her readers uh, before the legislative session excuse me, and then did a follow-up afterward about what are the issues you hope the legislature will address, and then afterward, how happy or unhappy were you about whether they dealt with your issues or not. And Greg, it's interesting that with all of the hot-button issues that we all covered during this session, um, the ones that Savannah uh, and and the people around Savannah who read the the, the, uh, current pointed to were not addressed much at all. They called climate, they called it climate resilience uh, as about the most important issue the legislature could address. They wanted the legislature to prevent environmental degradation in general, which is the way the current describes it. And, and of course, one of the biggest uh, uh, measures in that regard was the bill to protect the Okefenokee Swamp from uh, future mining. Um, and it never went anywhere. So well, we can start with that, but I'd love to hear you all talk about other issues you think that rose to the top as being important and were decided and those that were left behind. Greg? Yeah, Bill, that reflects what we always see in polls that we usually do to start a legislative <clears throat> session, including this year, where we hear voters say that transportation, education, infrastructure, jobs, you know, all, all the things that we, we talk about doing a campaign – um, that those are their top issues. And that's not to say that lawmakers didn't address those because there was certainly a number of, especially education and, and economic legislation this year, workforce development and workforce housing and, and the like. Um, but, you know, we and lawmakers too tend to focus on the, the more polarizing issues, um, whether it be culture wars or election laws or whatever, which are which are also very, very important. Um, but sometimes uh, that focus shifts attention away from the measures that literally impact everyone's lives on a, on a daily basis. Sam, your thoughts. No, that reminds me of living in D.C. You had the inside the beltway and the outside the beltway. Um, and I, I don't really find it surprising that the issues that get a lot of play at the legislature may not be top issues for many folks elsewhere around the state. Michael? On a personal privilege, I was delighted that the House and the Senate, uh, Speaker Burns and Lieutenant Governor Jones, uh, the CAF House and Senate delegation were successful in getting our SPLOS, our special purchase uh, local option sales tax through the legislature almost unanimously. So just on a real personal uh, basis from DeKalb County, $1.2 billion in capital, uh, $600 million for capital, $600 million for tax relief. Thank you all for that. Now, let me tell you what I think from a statewide more compelling was the school voucher bill. What it reminded me of was the old coalition bill when we were under the gold dome, when you had urban, primarily black Democrats voting with rural uh at that point, conservative rural Democrats, but now rural Republicans. That was the rebirth or at least the reestablishment of that coalition. And it hailed 
And that's why the defeat of the voucher bill, I think, uh, is compelling and may be a road uh, pathway forward for further uh, collaboration uh, on legislation. Urban Democrats, rural, now Republicans and Democrats. Yeah, who really did come together. And go ahead, Andra. Sure. I mean, I think it's actually really interesting that CEO Thurman points this out and points about there are things that happen and then there are things that don't happen. So uh, you, it's not uncommon to not get everything done that you set out to or should actually uh, be placed on an agenda in a legislative session. Um, one of the things I'll point out with the survey is, you know, it is there's some selection bias there. So people are choosing to opt in to express uh, their points of view. Um, that being said, the issues that are being raised, I think, you know, are things that one would expect people, you know, on the coast to be raising and and, and to be concerned about. Um, you know, the question with a vote of vote is actually a very blunt instrument in terms of uh, how precise it is in conveying what people's opinions are and what their desires and agendas are. So politicians feel free reign to just kind of infer what they want uh, from their vote. So they're like, if you voted for me, you must agree with all the things that I agree with. And I'm going to do kind of what I feel like doing once I'm in office. Um, and so I'm wondering if an exercise like this, which I think is actually really valuable, could be channeled in a different way to more clearly communicate to legislators that these are our expectations. So what if, in addition to just writing in to a news site, um, there was a way to organize those concerns convey them directly to the legislators from that region, um, maybe even with people actually personally communicating with their legislators, and then looking to see what the responsiveness looks like. And I would actually like mix it up a little bit. I might do it randomly, sort of talk to some legislators, not talk to other people, and then see whether or not you see those legislators acting in particular ways, whether or not we see an increase in their bill sponsorship rates on issues of concern, what their votes look like on um, these votes when it comes up for a roll call vote in the chamber. These, are, I, I think, would actually sort of draw the line between responsiveness and non-responsiveness, though I'm not surprised about the issues that were suggested there, even though I do wonder what that would look like if that was a scientifically polled sample. Yeah, I, I hear that. Um, Greg, let me talk about another thing that people told uh, The Current. Uh, there was a lot of interest in issues in uh, regarding um, alternative energy. Uh, for instance, EVs. Um, you know, you know, the the federal government under uh, the Biden infrastructure law uh, gave one hundred thirty five million dollars to Georgia to help cover the cost of installing electric vehicle charging stations around the state. But uh, some of the current readers were a little bit puzzled. And also, of course, Kemp has talked about making Georgia the EV capital of America. So so there was some puzzlement about the fact that um, the legislature passed a bill, which in fact is going to put a, a significant tax, <clears throat> excuse me, on uh, charging of electric vehicles. And am I also right, Greg, that a bill that passed that sits on the governor's desk, but he has not signed yet, would in fact raise the cost of paying for um, electricity for your car would um would mimic the the increased cost of gasoline in the state as well. If I got that right, um, <clears throat> overall it it's it, it's a tax for electric vehicles owners to charge uh, their 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 vehicles at at electric vehicle stations. Um, it, currently, <clears throat> the state uses tax levied on gasoline to pay for infrastructure, but drivers of electric vehicles don't pay the gas tax. So lawmakers who overwhelmingly agreed for this legislation, by the way, saw this as a way to to at least shift some of the costs on electric vehicles because we see the trend. We see where the trend is going. Overall, when it comes to this whole green energy, um, I, you know, I always tell my kids that this is this is a moment that they'll look back to when they're my age as, a, as this transformational shift. Um, we're seeing down in Savannah, it's not surprising that it's such a big issue in Savannah because Hyundai has a huge plant um, that's going to create, produce, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of electric vehicles. Of course, we're seeing Rivian. Um, we're seeing the battery industry um, crop up all over Georgia, the solar power industry and Q-cells that we talked about last week with Vice President Harris's visit. Um, the electric aviation mobility industry is springing up in Georgia. So Georgia is becoming this hotbed of mm -hmm. green energy. 
And it's something that, of course, both parties can coalesce behind, um, but it'll also take a, a number of, of new changes uh, and, and a new strategic rethinking of Georgia law in order uh, to to fully embrace this new industry. And so we didn't see too much this year. I mean, that that bill, um, that, that legislation you talked about was was sort of a, an incremental step. But I think over the next few years, um, there's, a, there's a lot more legislation that involves the infrastructure and also the workforce, because all these new factories we've been talking about, we're talking about, you know, not just thousands of jobs, but tens of thousands of jobs. And so that workforce development uh, uh, part of this is, is a key factor. Mike? Have we got you there, Mike? It's ironic at some level. And yeah, I'm here. Uh, when you think about it, I know Governor Kemp still has three years in his in his term and he's not thinking about legacy and he's not asking me in my opinion either. But one, it's ironic that I believe that his most lasting legacy will be what Bluestein just pointed out. Now, he's had the support of our two Democratic senators, uh, Warnock and Ossoff, but Governor Kemp will be remembered, uh, at least at the state level, as the governor that ushered in this new era of clean energy and placed Georgia at the forefront of it. And I think uh, Bluestein is absolutely right, and we are seeing it, and it's amazing. I went up to the SK Battery plant with uh, Andrew Young a few months ago and just uh, toured the plant. It's amazing what is taking place and how rapidly this change is occurring. Uh, Sam, uh, as long as we've gotten off on the talk about alternative energy and, and EVs, um, the fact that the Biden administration is rolling out new standards for uh, emissions of gas motored vehicles that will push the automobile industry to convert to electric vehicles, I think much sooner than many people expected. I think by nine years down the road, these standards are expected to have drastically changed the percentage of electric vehicles on the road to well over 50%. And clearly, um, while there's going to be a lot of controversy about that, if that moves forward, uh, that certainly helps the state of Georgia as well, doesn't it? Uh, potentially, but I think the day of getting large amounts of Congress to pay for these changes is over. So um, it takes a lot of EV charging stations to make this policy in any way, shape, or form doable. Uh, as Greg said, the, the bill this year was a small bill and there will be iterative changes thereafter. But I, I'm having trouble finding the billions of dollars that's going to literally make uh, operating an electric vehicle um, doable. You know, when you when you take a trip to Savannah, it's only a couple cars that can make that trip without needing to be recharged. And uh, there aren't a lot of uh, places between Macon and Savannah to do that. So I, I think there's a huge um, issue about how to make it practical. Uh, uh, I certainly, you know, am a fan of this technology, wanted to to continue to grow in our state, but I think we are far from having systems in place. I know GDOT's working on that. Uh, a lot of folks are working on it, but it takes billions of dollars. And um, with the split in Congress at the moment, I'm finding that that difficult to, to see where those dollars are all going to come from. Okay, well, thank you for that. Um, Michael Thurman, um, you, we mentioned the uh, planned Atlanta Police Training Center a little bit earlier in the show. You have been, you've had a piece of all that because, as we all know, the land on which it is going to be built uh, it sits in DeKalb County. Um, the DeKalb government, with your leadership, I think initially approved the first steps of allowing uh, progress on that. But now the um, that issue is coming back uh, to um, your zoning uh, uh, people today, tonight, uh, for further review about whether or not the progress can continue out there. Have I got that right? Yes, full disclosure. Of course, our Board of Zoning Appeals is a citizen-run uh, 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 panel no involvement from myself or any of the commissioners. Uh, and thank you for asking this question too, Bill. 
Uh, and I want to clarify the position of myself as CEO in DeKalb County's government as it relates to the uh, public proposed public tra safety training center. Uh, using a, since it's spring and baseball season started, we are the umpire in, in this between uh, people who support the training center and those who may oppose it for various reasons, whether it's environmental reasons or, or concerns about the militarization of police forces. Uh, we are one of the regulators. There are also state and federal regulators to, number one, protect the health, safety, and welfare of the people who live near and around that community or the location where it's being built. Uh, two, to protect the natural resources, the abundant natural resources that exist uh, there at the South River Forest. Our job is to call balls and strikes, uh, and that's what we have done, and that's what we'll try to do so that people no matter which side of this issue you're on, uh, obviously everybody won't be satisfied. Probably nobody will. But at the end of the day, we just want to do our job in a fair way, in an objective way, so that the people who want to build can build but follow the rules, regulations, ordinances, and laws. Those in the community who are concerned <laughs> legitimately about impacts on the environment will know that as one of the regulators, uh, we're going to be very aggressive in protecting uh, those resources. So that's it. You know, I wake up every day and realize how fortunate I am that Atlanta decided to build this facility in the <laughs> That's a joke. Well, Bill. but Mike, but, at, at the same, I know, I know, but at the same time, is it not true that it, it is DeKalb that really has the power to take the first steps of allowing for uh, the uh, development of the land that the training center will sit on? It isn't as if you're a neutral party in all this. Well, no, we are regulated. So we're neutral to the extent that we must be objective. Uh, we don't take sides on either side of this as it relates to our legal responsibility to, to implement and oversee the zoning and planning and development uh, laws, regulations of DeKalb County, Georgia. That's our role. Uh, I, you know, nobody asked me whether or not they should, or would, would whether or not the uh, training center should be built in DeKalb County. They didn't need to ask me because if you're a landowner like any other landowner, if you want to develop the property as Atlanta wants to develop because they are the rightful owners of the property, they have the right to do that within the confines of our planning and uh, development laws, rules, and regulations, as well as in the state or federal. So that's what's going on. And but we, what, what makes this so challenging is that there are no 100% absolute right answers or wrong answers. This is a very complex, uh, very um, uh, intense, sometimes emotional set of issues. Uh, what we want to do, continue to do, to try to de-escalate the situation. I'm encouraged that Mayor Dickens is setting up now a 40-person uh, commission so that people either oppose it or not can do it in a nonviolent, respectful way so that everyone will have the opportunity to be heard. Th that's what we do, and that's who we are, and that's the role that I've uh, asked and directed the employees of DeKalb County to take. We'll call the balls and strikes, but when you call them balls and strikes, there's always someone who may disagree or be upset by the decisions you make, but it's not Great. our role to be for or against the training center. Greg, uh, I think both of us and other journalists as well have been hearing from Ted Terry, DeKalb County Commissioner, on this issue, who is determined that the commission will have a role in uh, uh, trying to uh, stop this from moving forward. Yeah, and this speaks to the ongoing opposition and a reminder that this is not going to be some easy battle, right? This is not just going to to, to go away. This is going to be a years-long fight Um it, you know, it, different iterations throughout the the, the legal and governmental process. Um, it's not like this this center will just be built in a day, and, and Atlanta officials could kind of just say, "Oh, it's a done deal." Um, and you know, this zoning hearing is just the latest kind of flashpoint. And yeah, there there are folks uh, on the DeKalb County Commission, like Ted Terry, um, who are continue to to raise objections and raise concerns about this, and say that the DeKalb County Commission should play a role. All right. Um, thank you for the conversation so far. Let's take our final break of the show and come back with more on today's Political Rewind.
Um, I want to talk about Clarence Thomas and the ProPublica article about him and about whether we are concerns about what appears to be the increased politicization of of, uh, uh, the federal judiciary uh, is really an issue that we need to somehow address. But before I do, Mike Thurman, Jack Ellis, former mayor of Macon, who listens to this show on a regular basis, sent me a note during the break saying uh, he wants you for governor in 2026, but let's not let the co- that cop city be a weight on your shoulders. <laughs> so you've got the oh. former mayor of Macon uh, <laughs> rooting for you, Mike Thurman. You see, Jack? <laughs> yeah, well, thank you, Mayor, for your kind words. But look, I'm just trying to get through these last, what, 16 months of this administration. It's been a challenge. Um, Andre Gillespie, let me start with you on this, if I may, please, on this. Um, the pro, We all know about the ProPublica article. By now, it points out that for some 20 years, Clarence Thomas and his wife Ginny have had a very close friendship with Harlan Crow, a very conservative mega donor to conservative uh, individuals and organizations. Um they have gone on lavish vacations, according to ProPublica, um, pl- flying on private jets, uh, uh, taking trips on what, what ProPublica calls uh, super yachts. Um, and, and Clarence Thomas answers all that by saying, look, there are no specific rules. And when I got, to, got the job, there were no specific rules in place that talked about how I had to report these things. It is true that more recently the court has adopted more stringent rules on reporting. But but the real issue here is Clarence Thomas has always been a lightning rod. And and the question is how this adds to the feeling that are, is, is growing among many people that our courts have become uh, instruments of politics. Well, uh, uh, my colleagues who study courts uh, at Emory, I think, would argue that it's long been political. Um, And so there are ways that it can be politicized. Uh, You know, the election process can, you know, obviously is a political process, especially when people run um, on explicitly political themes and talk about their judicial philosophy in ways that going to suggest that they know how they're going to vote on issues before they come before their courts. We usually infer politics uh, from judges based on whoever is appointing them to office if they're in an appointed position. And so you assume that people are looking for judges who uh, are going to sort of share the same political philosophy um, of those who appoint. And there's a wide literature on whether or not that's actually, you know, even a reasonable kind of uh, inference to make uh, and whether or not judges actually behave in the ways that the people who nominated them would have wanted them to behave. Uh, and then, you know, there's just the, the internal dynamics. This is an institution with rules and norms. And then there are the ways that they interact with each other that are themselves about wielding power. So it's inherently political. I think the issue with Clarence Thomas, you know, isn't that he's been embattled from the moment he was, you know, nominated to uh, replace Thurgood Marshall on the Supreme Court. There are um, issues that come up because of his wife's political activities. And I think that these are important questions that people ask when you have power couples where both spouses are, you know, have, uh, you know, careers and they're both public uh, and you have to navigate that without stymieing, um, you know, the prospects of, of of the other spouse, the one who's not serving in positions. But, you know, Jenny uh, Thomas is visible and highly controversial. And then there are also questions about objectivity. I always teach when, you know, we're talking about Article 3 that the reason why judges explicitly are given a salary in the Constitution Constitution is to try to shield them from attempts at bribery. And so I think the question here is what the optics of this looks like. So the Thomases, you know, can have friends. They can have rich friends. Um, But the issue is is that Harlan Crow has been their friend since uh, Justice Thomas um, was confirmed to the Supreme Court. So people are asking questions about like what his motivations may be. And so even though he hasn't directly had business before the court, this is somebody who curries favor in Republican circles and who has his ear and who the people think may be influencing his judicial philosophy. You know, Thomas would be on stronger ground if this is somebody he had been friends with for 40 years um, and the friendship predated the court. But I think there's also the problem that Thomas has tried to present himself as being more of an everyman. Like, I thought he went on vacations in an RV and slept in Walmart parking 
parking lots. So I'm not, yeah. I don't care that he goes to fancy resorts, you know, around the world. But now that I'm finding out that you didn't tell this, like this is actually what's kind of undermining his reputation. And I don't necessarily think that that's a partisan hit job. It's a, you had a certain self-presentation and a certain brand. We're now finding otherwise and knowing sort of the, the, the reach of Harlan Crow, people are wondering whether or not there's something to it. Greg, I do think an element of this that Andra just touched on that's important is Harlan Crow be, befriended Clarence Thomas after, after he was confirmed to the court. It was not a friendship that uh, predated Clarence Thomas's uh, 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 sit, sitting on uh, the bench. But, but Greg, you can talk about Clarence Thomas. But let's add Matthew Kaczmarek in Texas last week, a Trump-appointed judge who very specifically has an overt political point of view against abortion, makes a ruling that could stop the abortion pill, uh, misoprostone, from being distributed across the country. In Wisconsin, uh, uh, you've got a Supreme Court justice uh, candidate who won by 11 points, Janet Protasiewicz, who ran on a platform of saying she will restore uh, legal rights to choose in um, Wisconsin. And of course, you've got the Dobbs decision by a conservative court. So Andre may be right that that politics have always played a role in our courts, but it just feels like all of these things coming together make us more aware than ever of the politicization of, of uh, judges. Yeah, and it's something, of course, the judiciary and the legal community has, has never overlooked. You know, the fact that the, Donald Trump's biggest legacy might be the, the dozens of, of federal judges he appointed, including, of course, the Supreme Court justices, and uh, that, that will bring lasting change to, to American policy. But we're also seeing it. We haven't seen it in Georgia as much, but we're definitely seeing it in other states um, that have state Supreme Court elections, uh, millions of dollars being spent by rival groups for nonpartisan elections that are basically being framed as partisan votes by supporters from both sides of the aisle. And we saw that Wisconsin. We've seen that some other states. Um, we haven't had that again in Georgia because we have had very few state Supreme Court elections. Most of these are appointments. Um, and, and once you get to the appointment side, it's very hard to oust an incumbent. Um, but but it, it's becoming a, a, a prevalent trend around the nation. Sam, as attorney general, you certainly saw uh, judges in action more than uh, most of us. Um, in general, your thoughts on, on this whole subject of Clarence Thomas and politics and uh, the judiciary. So appearance has been propriety is a huge issue. And we're now living at a time where both judges and prosecutors are making statements before they ever come to office that tarnish their ethical morals. Um, you know, the day where you used to say, I can't cover the subject because it may come before the court is long gone, apparently. The day when certain state attorneys general or other prosecutors <clears throat> say, well, I want to go after X or Y is long gone. That erodes public trust. Um, and it's totally inappropriate. Um, judges, prosecutors need to do their best to demonstrate impartiality. Um, and we're seeing a, a huge uh, gap there. And, and candidly, Greg referenced Trump judges. Frankly, Obama and Biden judges uh, are the same. He hasn't had the number of picks. He has had zero. Well, he's only, excuse me, had one pick to the U.S. Supreme Court. But when you look at their judges, the day of the centrist being nominated is gone. None of these presidents are looking for centrist. Last comment, which, which you haven't covered, but I think is appropriate. Um, standing, legal standing, is a huge issue. Uh, Andra probably pays some attention to this. When you look at the case in Texas, you have groups suing that historically would have never had the legal opportunity to have their issues heard. And following that 2007 case involving the EPA, uh, there's now been a huge opening of groups suing the state governments, federal governments. Um, and I think the U.S. Supreme Court is going to have to backtrack there because that's also not healthy to democracy. 
Andre, I'll let you weigh in just to make sure we're, we, our listeners are on the same page with all of us. Standing means whether a litigant who wants to bring a matter to the court really has an actual stake in the matter at hand rather than just being someone who throws something out that they'd like to see a decision on. Yeah. Um, and, and and I think that the issue with the with the Mifepristone case is also this is related to the technical process of the drug approval. And, you know, in our federal court system, we do have specialized courts that deal with stuff like patents because even really smart people, if you don't know it, you don't know it. And so that the issue here is how can you say that the, the, the approval process was wrong? Like, do you have the background in science to actually be able to judge this? So that part is, is actually what is particularly shocking about this particular case. And maybe the grounds that this gets overturned either at the, at the Fifth Circuit, at the appellate level, or at the Supreme Court. Um, we're running out of time, but Mike, you're an attorney too. Uh, give us your thoughts on, on this as we close today's show out. Well, I can add no more than what the former <coughs> attorney general has stated. Uh, but to the broader narrative, uh, judges, the judiciary at the federal and state level is becoming more and more politicized. That's, you know, we celebrated the victory in Wisconsin. Democrats did uh, this week. So that's just a part of who we are. And maybe, as Professor Gillespie said, it's always been political. And we're just obviously now paying more attention to it. Mike Thurman, Sam Olin's Andre Gillespie, Greg Bluestein. By the way, Patricia Murphy is listening. She sent a note saying that uh, it may not have been Cop City, it was Cash City, talking about J.B. Pritzker saying he'll pay for the convention exactly. himself. <laughs> we're, ba- we're back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nigat. Take care, stay healthy, and please be kind to one another. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.